Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. And welcome back to God's Planning. I am Father Gregory Pine, joined here by Father Pontiventure Chapman. And we're uh, coming at you live, not live, that's that's not true. We're coming at you pre-recordedly from Washington, D.C. It's live now. <laughs> exactly, it's live to us. Um, and uh, we're here in the Thomistic Institute offices, um, uh, just kind of rekindling the flame of ordinary God's planning programming. Uh, so kind of getting back into the swing of things uh, as the nation and the world kind of gets back into the swing of things. Father Bonaventure, um, anything in the past few weeks that have felt to you like getting back into the swing of things? Um, I guess I was out for dinner one night. <laughs> And there were people in the streets and it was shocking and it actually felt like unnormal. Um, Is that right? Is that a good word? Mm -hmm. Um, Because Mm. it felt like we were in Europe because there are people eating on the street, like the street itself. And everyone was normal except for the people, the waiters and the waitresses were wearing masks, but everyone else. So that felt kind of normal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like the, the, the unnormal is a return to the normal. Never mind, That's not worth examining, but uh, another cool thing, so Thomistic Institute, you know, we've been having like a lot of virtual programming and uh, right now we're planning two conferences that will actually be in person. <laughs> what would it be like to meet, has anyone ever thought, have you thought about this, dear viewers? Uh, what would it be like to meet people again? Yeah. And oh, I I, uh, I I shook someone's hand. Get out. The other day. What was that like? That was not a Dominican, which is fantastic. Oh my because God. to me, the hardest part about this COVID thing um, is that the fear that I'll never be able to shake people's hands. Yeah. And I'm an American. That's right. So it's important to end every conversation, to start and end every conversation by shaking someone's hand, even if you're going to see that person again in about 30 minutes. That's right. Even if there's no deal involved, like just the existence of it. So I shook someone's hand tonight, which I was, I was excited about that. And that was a, uh, there was normalcy. Yeah. I was reading a, uh, an online news source the other day. And it had a compilation of different thoughts from a bunch of infectious disease specialists and mm-hmm. epidemiologists. What's wrong with you? Uh, I don't know. Um, and, and they were asked a battery of questions. And one of those questions was, what do you think are things that will never again be the same? And one of them said, the handshake is dead. And no that reason man, to live at this point. Exactly. Yeah, that, that man's wrong. You are living proof. Well, that's, yeah. And that's, that man is wrong. That's like saying the Yankees will never play baseball again. Like... America would just cease to exist. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a uh, a controversial claim to some, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think I think it's just proof that the handshake is part of the natural law. It's something that can't wholly be blotted out from the heart of man because it pertains so immediately to our good. At least for Americans. At least for Americans. In Europe, as you will find out soon enough, uh, handshaking is not something you do. So um, you will be immediately ostracized for doing such a thing. Right. But I want to encourage you to carry on. Thank you. Okay. I feel very encouraged by the encouragement with which you have encouraged me mm. to quote St. Paul. All right. So here in this episode, we're going to uh, pick up on the theme of X and literature. You may have noticed mm. in past episodes that we've covered uh, the literary exploits of a few different individuals. I think we did our first one on Chesterton and literature. That's we right. did one on David Foster Wallace in literature. That's right. We did one on Cormac McCarthy in literature. That's true. And now we're doing this one. Um, Dostoevsky in literature. Dostoevsky. Fyodor Dostoevsky. So, Father Bonaventure, you're a great lover of Dostoevsky. I am a lover of Dostoevsky. How did this come to be? Well, 
who could not love Dostoevsky? <laughs> it's like who could not dislike G.K. Chesterton? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wait, you reversed that. Righto. Um, <laughs> I, so, as I think, I don't. Maybe as a, I think I fell in love with Dostoevsky as a Protestant um, because he was, I guess, touted as being an evangelical kind of guy who took Christianity seriously and the personal relationship with Christ seriously and all this. So I remember being in Grove City College and Dostoevsky was just in the, in the air. He was an important author who was a religious author, but also a good writer uh, because you, you can be religious and you can be good. And it's very often not the same. It's like watching saints videos or something. Like it's very hard to find a good movie. That's also a movie about a saint. It's right. really hard to do. The Terrence Malick one recently. Yeah. It was about recently. Um, a Hidden Life. A Hidden Life is pretty close to being like, it's a good movie mm-hmm. and it's about a saint. Mm-hmm. But almost most of them, like, I mean, John Baptist, De La Salle, these kind of movies, they're just not good movies. But Dostoevsky was a Christian, serious Christian writer, at least I was told this, um, who was also a good writer. Mm. And that intrigued me. Uh, and so I started reading him in maybe in the college, but then also I taught literature in uh i taught a literature course when i was uh, teaching a baptist school and uh i taught the idiot so dostoevsky's uh the idiot which is his third no second of his big four books um and that got me really into reading dostoevsky and then crime all that fell from that so i think it was the evangelical background that got me excited about dostoevsky Mm. do you have any uh do you have any when did you come across dostoevsky i came across dostoevsky by talking to you so, yeah, I was entirely innocent of Dostoevsky. I suppose I would have come across him had I pursued a certain course of studies in college, but I didn't. And so I entered the novitiate and then you talked about him. And then I figured that I ought to read him because it seemed like, you know, good, God-fearing, intelligent human beings like Dostoevsky. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, let's see, we entered in 2010. The summer of 2012, when we were in Providence, I read uh, The Idiot, the Brothers Karamazov, and Crime and Punishment. Best summer of your life. Yeah, it wasn't actually. Well, that's fantastic. We'll get to that. So this is going to, I, I suppose, surface over the course of this conversation, but I don't really understand Dostoevsky. And maybe it's because I don't understand him that I don't like him because mm. to be able to uh, <clears throat> grapple with something that you don't understand means that you're admitting that it's, may, maybe it merits understanding, but you lack the resources to understand it. So maybe that's embarrassing for me, but that's a long way of saying that I don't really like Dostoevsky. Yeah. Cause I haven't yet found something in Dostoevsky to love as other people love. And by virtue of the fact that other people love him so much, I'm sometimes like, am I missing something? So maybe we can, maybe we can unearth the sources of that misunderstanding. Seems unlikely, but let's give it a go. Okay. Maybe I'll just end up by hating him more. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's launch into a little bit of his biography in as much as we do biographies of anyone, we just say the things that we know and give rough sketches. Mm-hmm. Um, who, you know, like who is he, where'd he come from, when he lived, that kind of stuff. Dostoevsky, as you may imagine, is from Russia. You don't know this. <laughs> uh, now, now for some new facts, perhaps, um, 19th century. So was born in 1821, died in 1881. So a decent life for that time sort of thing. Um, the key points grew up as a young radical. So in the early 19th century, Russia's going through a time of progressivism in a sense, um, against the old Yanshan regime. So they're doing this against the czars. So there's this radical kind of idea of nihilism, atheism, that kind of thing, political radicalism, you could say. Um, And he gets caught up in this group as a young man. And as a young man, he's, so he's caught and arrested for this, he's doing political work. And he's, 
he's sentenced to death. Uh, and he, what they have is this famous mock execution. He's sentenced to death. And so they take him out to the firing line and they put them out, him and his, and his compatriots, and they, and, they, and they have the gun, you know, the gunman there, the firing squad, and they say, ready, aim. And then someone comes in a horse, so it's a mock execution, but someone comes in a horse and has them stop and put the sentence just to years of hard labor in Siberia. Mm. But this experience, the first, that mock execution, the fact that he feels like he's going to die. I mean, you're imagine being on the firing lot, on firing squad there and ready aim. I mean, you have a thing over you, some cover over your head or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're going to die. Um, so thinking about death in that way, the time and all that. And then the second part is, so then he's sent to Siberia where he works hard labor from, I think it's 1849 until 1854 or something in mid mid fifties. So five, five, five years or so. Um, and during that time, he discovers the New Testament. Mm. And this kind of changes him. And so he has this conversion experience. You can see why evangelicals tend to like Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. He has this real conversion experience that moves from the radicalism of nihilism and atheism and political progressivism and what have you to a return to Mother Russia and the faith of Russia as this the Orthodox faith. And... The, this well changes his whole life, and so he writes his novels after this. So his, his, his all his literary work is, in a sense, downstream of these two experiences of one finding the New Testament in the jail, but two the kind of experience of death mm -hmm. um, because of that that got him to this point. Um, so he has a, a you know a reasonably long life, and for that time he writes a number of important books. The big four, of course, are his first crime and punishment, eighteen sixty six. And then the idiots after that, the end of the 1860s, and then demons, 1872, I think. And then the end, 1880, is most famous one, the Brothers Karamazov. That's the so these are the four big, big books. And each one, except for demons, is worth the price of admission to Western civilization. So if we'd only if Russia had only produced these three books, um, it would be worth it. So okay. and then finally, at the end of his life. He gives this great speech called the, the Punchkin Memorials. He's memorializing a Russian author, um, Punchkin speech. And this is where he comes out and gives a speech about the importance of, of Russia as a spiritual, mystical Christian nation versus the Westernizers. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about Dostoevsky, this is just a side point culturally, is that he's for Christianity, but not for the West. Mm -hmm. So he sees the West and in his books, like technology mm -hmm. or the trains, especially like sure. trains for him are, are sin entering into the world. And you see this very explicitly, the railroads, this kind of Western thing. So we tend to think of like the West, we associate Christianity with the West, mm -hmm. but what Dostoevsky, the interesting part, one of the interesting parts about him is the West is actually the place of nihilism for him. That's where the nihilistic progressive ideas of his youth come. But Christianity is something that's not from the West. It's something that grew up in Mother Russia, mm -hmm. you know, the Third Rome in Moscow, that kind of thing. So that's that's I guess that's a, a snapshot of his life and the influences. Yeah, here's a like a kind of parenthetical thought. Um, I well, here we go. Uh, unrelated, and then it'll be related. I like Charles Dickens because I like G.K. Chesterton, mm -hmm. right? So, and I read Chesterton on Dickens, and that for me was like the hermeneutic key to understanding. Dickens, and then I, you know, read a handful of Dickens novels, and I read Chesterton's thoughts into them and found what he said to be true and delighted therein. Uh, for me, in part, my appreciation of 
Dostoevsky, What Little I Have, comes from reading that essay by David Foster Wallace, which is a review of Joseph Frank's, Joseph Frank. like four or five volume. Five volume. Ooh, gosh, um, biography of Dostoevsky. And the point to be made is simply this, that it's hard to understand Dostoevsky unless you understand both the history and the ideology of the time. Because Dostoevsky, while his themes transcend um, his particular setting, mm -hmm. they are very much embodied in the particular setting. So it's helpful to read like a little bit of an introduction to Dostoevsky before launching into Dostoevsky. Mm. Usually, you know, like most people are against reading introductions because it's like somebody else whom you don't trust poisons your thoughts and makes it so that you can't but see what he sees. So a lot of people just kind of prefer to have virginal experience of a text. With respect to Dostoevsky, maybe, maybe you can enjoy that. But I found that I appreciate it more when I have a better understanding of what's going on both historically and ideologically, mm -hmm. because everything that he has to say is either a reaction against or a kind of vilification of or a, like a retrenchment in, but it's all, yeah. it's all situated. So um, with that kind of background bio, maybe then we can shift into the appeal. Mm -hmm. why, why is it that one would like Dostoevsky to speak in the abstract? Why is it that you like Dostoevsky? Uh, what of your liking of him as idiosyncratic? What do you think of your liking of him as shared broadly with the reading public? Yeah, well, so one, and I, I think this is important, is that the spiritual versus the Western is that he's very timely in a sense because we're living in a culture in a time today where actually the Western values are not necessarily Western democracy, liberal democracy, capitalism, all this. We're starting to wonder whether our institutions are committed to Christianity, the Christian vision. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, he was out front of that. Yeah. So he already saw that actually there could be a tension here, that the West and Christianity need not, they could actually be distinct things, although they, of course, related to each other. So one is the, the opening up that discussion. But the second thing is, Dostoevsky is serious about the spiritual matters in a way that doesn't come off as, as immature or childish. I mean, if you read certain authors in the Christian tradition or certain writers, you get a sense that to ask spiritual questions is kind of, well, serious authors don't ask these questions or they hide them in such a significant way. So like people like Lord of the Rings versus the Chronicles of Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia is very up in front about, about Christianity and its different messages. Mm -hmm. And it's a kid's book, right? And the Lord of the Rings, it's very hidden so that yeah. one could read that and not know anything about Christianity unless you're Peter Kreeft. And so it's like, but that's a good writer, and C.S. Lewis isn't. The interesting thing about Dostoevsky is he's as upfront about the spiritual messages, about Christianity, about the soul, about immortality, about death, about the meaning of life, existentialism, but not at the expense of extremely good literature. Mm. So he's able to, and this is what, if anyone, if anyone wants an introduction to, to um, Dostoevsky, that essay from David Foster Wallace, called Joseph Frank's Dostoevsky in Considerable Lobster Collection is a phenomenal one. He points this out, that Dostoevsky asks serious questions about the meaning of life, uh, fate, determinism, free will, Christ, beauty, all the things that, you know, we don't take seriously in our normal discourse, but he puts them right in there with his main characters. And it doesn't seem cheesy or put on. It feels completely natural mm -hmm. and there's something about about the naturalness of discussions about the very most very important issues that i think attracts one of dostoevsky for those who care about these very important issues about life death christ the future freedom determinism evil 
all that stuff, God, the question, those big questions. It just doesn't feel hokey. And yet at the same time, you can't imagine other writers doing this. He has this weird way of getting across serious spiritual points without you knowing it. Yeah. Without you feeling, feeling like you're hoodwinked into reading a Christian novel. This is, these aren't Christian works, but they're profoundly Christian works and directly explicitly so. I think that um, it's the vocation of the author to help his reader to see Right. So the author has a kind of vision of reality, which is very particular, and he clothes it in very particular vesture. But he shares that or communicates that so that the intended audience would be kind of like welcomed into a common vision of reality so that your experience of reality would be like, you know, transfigured and given back to you. Um, I was reading a collection of essays about literature, and this author was saying how her friend was taking opera lessons or vocal lessons with this particular excellent, particularly excellent voice teacher. And she says she didn't sing for the first month. Rather, she was taught to see, you know, mm -hmm. like that was, it was a matter of noticing because you have to have your powers of noticing attuned in order to interpret as it were, or to transpose in the way that artists transpose. Um, and so I think with like Dostoevsky, he has a, a particular vision and he's able to communicate that vision. So on the one hand, he's not he's not overly concerned with communicating conceptual content. Like I want you to know this fact and this fact mm -hmm. and this fact, like he has characters and he sets them in his time and place and he lets them live. And that like these truths kind of emerge organically out of it, but he does have a way of distilling it in a way that other people don't necessarily. And I think that some people will find it, you know, a little bit, um, I don't know, garish, you know, it's like, Oh, it's too, too much. It's too much, you know, like, but, but, many people find it to be um, still, it, it has sufficient subtlety to really provoke the question without being inartful, which is difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a passage, for instance, The Idiot. I think The Idiot is his best book. Um, uh, it's the most cohesive of his narratives, um, and yet the most profound in a way. Brothers Karabmatsov is dealing with, is the most profound, whereas Crime Punishment maybe is the most cohesive, and The Idiot's kind of between those two. The Idiot is about Prince Mishkin, one of the main characters. He goes on this diatribe near the end of it about how all Jesuits are evil and the Roman Catholic Church is evil in the middle of a party or something. He's talking about the true Christ and Russia and the soil and having, you have to have land for to have a God. And it's, it's just over the top, but it doesn't feel over the top for some reason. It seems exactly what this kind of man would say. And, ex and this man is exactly what you'd expect given these circumstances. And it, that's, that's the impressiveness of he manages to insert in these what would otherwise be garish displays of spiritual exuberance into very ordinary situations such that you think, well, maybe I'm the weird one for not having spiritual conversations with people on a sort of regular, reasonable basis. And maybe he's, this is the way it's supposed to work. That's the interesting part about it. Boom. Chastening. Okay, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, continue to ask what makes him so appealing. And then just discuss a couple of major topics and themes uh, as we join you again for the latter half of this episode of God's Plan. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. And we're back. So we're discussing uh, the one, the only, Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, and specifically who he is, what his peculiar setting is, what he is about in his literary oeuvre, um, and, and why he has such lasting appeal. Many people consider the Brothers Karamazov to be 
one of the greatest one novels. The greatest ever. Yeah, ever. it's like top five. It's in a lot of people's top five. When you look at IMDb for like top five movies, you'll often find The Godfather up there, maybe The Shawshank Redemption. When you look at, I don't know, Time Magazine's top 100 novels, you'll often find The Brothers K there, which is crazy. But well, if you haven't read it, you're probably not literate. Wow. Um, it's like Augustine's Confessions. Devastating I mean, blow. You just go for it. Now, it's 800 pages, so it takes a while or something, but the stuff that it gets in there, you know, you just haven't lived and seen the world correctly until you haven't grappled with that novel, which, uh, by the way, again, I do not think is his best novel, mm. but it is the most profound of them, certainly. He has just nailed things down that no one else has got. Okay, we're going to get there. Mm. Well, we're going to get there in the course of talking about themes. Mm. Um, so if you're looking for plot summaries of his different works, you are to be sorely disappointed in the remainder of this episode of God's Planning. <laughs> because books are for reading, not for being over-explained. Um, I mean, that sounded, whatever, who cares? Um, so let's talk then about what, what, what else makes him so appealing. We talked about his spiritual seriousness, his capacity to propose these topics as objects of consideration without being like, you know, precious. Yeah. Uh, so what else recommends him? Well, the other one is, and this is maybe, this is like the college student recommendation one. And I get this. Um, so he's kind of, so, who's the father of existentialism? Well, it depends who you ask. Is it Swarm Kierkegaard? Is it Socrates? Um, <laughs> is it Dostoevsky? Is it Nietzsche? You know, these are difficult questions. Yeah. It's clearly not Jean-Paul Sartre, even though he's, you know, like he knows that too. But like where you found, and, but some people say, yeah, it's Dostoevsky. I mean, he is an existentialist in the sense that existentialism is this movement that develops at some time <laughs> <laughs> um, that focuses on existence over essence. That's how Jean-Paul Sartre talks about it, a French philosopher in the 20th century. Um, and it's about freedom and about choice over like determinism and these things so that you are not determined. So human beings are not determined by their natures, their essences, but we're determined by our existence and our choices in these situations. And that's what is important. So free will is really important. And this is one of those things like if you're a college student and you've, you, so you've spent your life living with your parents or in under certain circumstances and forced to do this, and then you go to college and you're free. And you realize, oh my gosh, every system behind me was just oppression. And now I can actually make choices like, you know, what I should, whether I should get McDonald's or Burger King or whether I should drink Natty Light or, or Milwaukee's, Milwaukee's Best, or I don't know, I went to an evangelical college I didn't drink in college. But anyway, there's choices to be made. And these choices are important, significant. And Dostoevsky is a man who, who focuses on freedom. Like this is the, that into each individual in his novel, there, there's a lot of cultural baggage they're in, they're implanted and embedded in a cultural context that is in some ways stifling, um, whether they're from the high class, the low classes, all these things. And yet each one of them is radically free. There's a sense that they have control of their lives mm. um, and that it's important that they do that. And the balance of good and evil hangs upon the choices that they individually make. Mm -hmm. Brooke, crime and punishment, what he does, whether he should just kill this woman or not, yeah. and, and how he does, I mean, Idiot is similar, you know, Brothers Karamazov, it's a struggle about Ivan and about what, how he's, so they're all struggling with, with their radical freedom that is their possession, it's theirs. Everything else is given to them, right? But, but their freedom of will for good and evil is, is their own and they have to make themselves that way. So there's, and there is something good about that, right? And it's very appealing for college students and I think why college students love Dostoevsky. And then you kind of grow up a little bit and you're like, well, but yeah, but I mean, a lot of life's about habits. I mean, you know, when you're a father of four kids or something like you're radically free in the sense that you're not. You know? <laughs> um, 
But there's still something true about the, the existentialism, the focus on the, the, the free choice of an individual for good or evil in these little things that turn out to have huge ramifications. Um, and then also, therefore, the psychological aspect. He really drills down without being like Freudian or bizarre, you know, really delving back. He really looks at what it means to have this space, this freedom to make moral decisions and how one is conflicted about that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, for those of us, especially in the West, who think a lot about turning inside on ourselves because we don't have to worry about getting eaten by lions or like making our daily bread, like we have plenty of opportunities today to just stare at ourselves and think about ourselves. Dostoevsky is appealing that way, I think, because of the existentialism, the psychology kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the four big novels. We recently read Demons and um, in, a in Demons and in Crime and Punishment. And I mean, a lot of times the choice of freedom hangs on whether or not to kill another human person. Um, For all of us. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, you could wake up. Never mind. I'm not going to complete this up. Uh, but, but in Demons, there are there's a group of young radicals, right? Kind of... Uh, blossoming nihilists and they want to show their sovereign autonomy by extinguishing a life and overthrowing the regnant social order. Mm. And uh, it starts with one guy, Stavrogan. It's all Stavrogan. It's all Stavrogan. By like pulling a guy's nose, you know, and like kissing a man's wife by doing like wild and unforeseen things. And I think a lot of us have had this experience where you realize at a certain point you could do something um, and that something would be bad. I remember this uh, it was in third grade when we had the assembly where they come in with all the instruments and try to convince you to pick up an instrument. So that way you can pay to rent it for like four years and drive your parents crazy. Yeah. Unless you're actually good at it, like Father Bonaventure. Um, and I remember looking at the bassoon player and thinking like, one, that is a silly looking instrument. And two, thinking like, I, a young lad of eight years old, could walk up to that bassoon player and cover the top of the bassoon in front of all of my peers. And I realized at that moment, like, ah, I don't think I really can, you know? because I'm not going to do that, you know? And, and a lot of Dostoevsky's characters, they, they experience that, and then they rebel against the limitation of habit or of custom mm. or of expectation, and then they do something crazy. And oftentimes, it devastates them. But as a result of which, you have these really cool psychological explorations about freedom, mm. right? Um, autonomy, uh, about what it means to be a human being, about how we are circumscribed. And, and a lot of those things produce really interesting ruminations. I mean, in, in crime and punishment, it's like an extended fever dream. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's tough. It's tough to go through, but it has a beautiful kind of narrative arc and reconciliation. I would say that's the most unambiguous redemption narrative mm -hmm. in those big four. And yes. I, I think St. Yes, John Paul II said that it was his, his favorite novel. Whereas in Ooh. Demons, it just ends in the destruction. Spoiler alert. Yeah, it just, it just tears everyone to pieces. It was not supposed to be this way. <laughs> this is not it. This is it. not it. This, this is, is not, not it. Yeah. Um, but it is cool because it forces you as a reader to grapple with your own freedom. I mean, like, I mean, anybody can read a book and just like drink a beer, smoke a cigar and not think about it again. But if you do want to try to think about it, you have to, you know, like you have to engage with the bedrock fact of your having a similarly indetermined or undetermined mm -hmm. will, which is, which is perilous. It's just kind of wild. That you could be good, but you also could not be good. Yeah, thou mayest. Yeah. Join John Steinbeck and East of Eden. Maybe we're talking to John Steinbeck at some point. Mm. That's right. Yeah, the, radic the radicality and, and therefore the developing the soul making. I think Dostoevsky gets us to think about what it means to be a human being in a way that 
no one else does, or at least it's not as apparent as, as some other, especially with the Christian aspects. Like, yes, you think a lot of stuff today you read about narratives and it's about being a human being and transgressing norms and all of this. And that, but for Dostoevsky, it's, it's the transgressing norms are usually the bad people. And it's the need for redemption after you realize that your freedom is usually used at your, to your detriment. So it has a very, which is interesting because it's very Augustinian, um, which of course the Russian Orthodox don't have a strong doctrine of original sin in the same way that the West, Westerners do. But it has this very much where the freedom of the will that all these characters experience is almost always negative mm. um, and in need of redemption of another. So it's your freedom and your humanity, but as in need of a savior and redemption, whatever capacity that comes in. And that's, a, that's, that's, that's an achievement. Mm. All right, we have time for one more uh, what makes him appealing slash major theme of his work. So bring it home. I think this might be the one on which we degree, disagree most substantially. Oh, it's literary power. Mm. I mean, Dostoevsky's characters just stick with you. You know, they're so well-rounded. And really? so, not well-rounded, say, but they're so specific. <laughs> I mean, everyone knows, like, Nastasha Filip- Filipovna, Prince Mishkin, I mean, Raskolnikov, Lebdev in, in The Idiot, um, I mean, Ivan, Dmitri, uh, Alo- Alyosha, like these are, they're almost like archetypes in a sense, but they're archetypes with flesh. It's not like a weird ideological thing. It's like, these are real, I can legitimately believe these are real characters that have real stories. The stories are crazy and the characters are nuts, but Dostoevsky is able to pull off both plot and characters in this most fully substantial way that's you know, I just don't forget these characters in a way that like other garbage authors like Tolstoy just can't pull out. Okay, go ahead. Um, okay, so I agree that characters should be characters. Um, I think that what makes a story interesting is that it has characters and that those characters uh, interact in such a way as to formulate a plot. Now, mind you, not all, not all stories have a plot. Like I'm thinking of a conversation that I recently had with somebody about Willa Cather. Like Death Comes for the Archbishop doesn't really have a plot. It's just kind of episodic. Another novel of hers, uh, The Song of the Lark. No, that's not the one I'm thinking of. Uh, Shadows on the Rock also doesn't really have a plot, just kind of episodic. What drives those things are the characters. And I think you have to lead with the characters. And I think the characters have to be real people. Mm-hmm. Like when C.S. Lewis asked, why did he write the Chronicles of Narnia? He said that he had an image of a fawn holding an umbrella underneath a lamppost. Yeah. Like he saw the character first. Yeah. Um, and this is why, this is one of, the, I think, the, um, the limitations or maybe um, the weaknesses of Chesterton as a novelist or as a short storyist is that he doesn't really have characters. You don't remember any of his characters' faces because none of them have faces because they're all just themes on stilts. And my concern with Dostoevsky is I don't share a common humanity with his characters because like I can sympathize with some of the things that they think and feel, but also I have no idea what's going on in their interior life. Like in, in demons, like there's this creepy eyed guy like hanging out in the corner behind the bureau and all of a sudden he like make creepy eye contact with him. And then all of a sudden he's flying at you, which we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe it's just a bad translation. Although the PVR and Volokonsky translations are great, but like, what is going on? <laughs> Let's be fair. That's a weird scene in a bizarre book. It is a weird scene in a bizarre book, but a lot of his characters, I have difficulty sympathizing. And that's not to say that like, you need to think like, I think exactly like this character because characters can obviously think different than you do because people think different than you do. But I have a great difficulty, I have great difficulty envisioning like what their humanity or like mm, feeling that I have a common hold on, on the humanity that they express. Maybe mm-hmm. because 
they're from a different century or because they're from a different you know side of the world or because mm -hmm. he has a different way of communicating it but that's what that's what makes it hard for me to read hmm. and i feel like i have to i have to enjoy it in spite of the fact that i don't like any of his characters yeah well i mean if you don't like characters of an author it's really not much else because he and his char characters are almost everything now characters because the characters incarnate ideas for him you know like ivan incarnates a particular kind of uh intellectual atheism uh whereas dimitri incarnates a sort of passionate this is brothers k uh passionate love uh and aloysia incarnates something like a, a spiritual commitment and and, uh, and asceticism mm -hmm. so if you don't yeah if you don't like the characters in dostoevsky you don't get much out of it i suppose in that way whereas with some other authors, again, kind of uh, silly, silly Christian authors, um, you can, like the characters are just there and you can skip those suckers and just go straight for the themes. But again, yeah, if you don't sympathize with the characters or like Nastasha Filop Filipovna in Idiot represents this kind of um, tainted self-loathing um, of excellence and beauty. And if you can't, yeah, if you can't, I, I could tell you, or Ag Aglaia, or I mean, the Ipachins and these kind of, you know, bourgeois people. And then Prince Miskin, of course, is Christ. Um, and, you know, some people don't sympathize with him, I guess. Oh, wow. I believe we went there. I was just accused of not sympathizing with Christ. Well, hey. Who does? Who <laughs> does? Yeah, though that that's fair, though. I mean, that's fair. I mean, yeah. And maybe I'm, I mean, I think it's all personal. We'll do a Tolstoy episode, I think. Mm -hmm. um, after I read at least one more book of him to be able to to weigh in and have my disputes about him. Um, but perhaps that'll be, yeah, we'll, we'll get you a chance. You're not deficient if you don't like Dostoevsky. Thank you. He doesn't. I feel buoyed up he's by a that. great man. <laughs> All right, with that commendation of my righteousness, we're going to wrap things up. Um, if you like Dostoevsky, if you don't like Dostoevsky, if you know someone who likes Dostoevsky, if you don't know someone who likes Dostoevsky, share this episode uh, because it may be a way in. And... Uh, We'd appreciate it if you did. So uh, delighted to share with you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of God's Planning. You're on our prayers. Please pray for us. Until the next time, God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.